Thanks for listening to the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry, here to help educate, motivate, and put you on the right path to take control of your health through weekly discussions on topics in the medical field, public health arena, and in your community. And now your host, Dr. Barry. And welcome to another edition of the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry. This is episode 55. And like always, head over to get the show notes at lunchlearnpod.com or drpiersblog.com forward slash LLP055. And today we have another great one. If you were able to listen to last week's episode, we had Rodina Masadu, a licensed clinical social worker who specialize in sexual assault, sexual trauma, and we follow right along with the same lines. I told you guys this was a two-part episode of discussion, and we have Marlene Francois out of New Jersey. And again, I'm not going to butcher her bio. I'll let her uh, do her own uh, from that standpoint. But she she not only has experience and expertise in sexual trauma, but she has also worked with victims of sexual trafficking she'll get into discussion of what sexual trafficking actually means and i'll understand i'll tell you right now uh, my only experience with it was naive and what i would see on tv and what i would see on svu so she really breaks it down for us and we'll also talk about her organization for more precious where she works primarily with teenage at-risk women as well as how mental health in the Haitian community is being affected during this time. So sit back, listen to another amazing episode with Marlene Francois. All right, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, thank you for joining another episode of the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry. And I'm excited. We have an amazing guest today, uh, Marlene Francois. And, you know, I'm not even going to uh, butcher uh, her bio, she's she's got a bio a mile long of amazing things that she's doing. And today is going to be another special episode. We're going to be getting into some deep discussion, deep conversation that I think needs to be had. And of course, like you guys know, whenever I want to listen and learn about a topic that I may not be the foremost expert on, again, as, obviously as being as an internist, I know a lot about a lot. I, I also know where my boundary lies. And this is one of these topics that where the boundary like hits a, a full stop. So I wanted to bring on an expert here on the Lunch and Learn. And again, I just want to kind of give you guys a, a, a warm welcome to Marlene Francois. Marlene, thank you for uh, joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me today. So Marlene, can you explain to, can you just, you know, give a, give a little quick bio of the, the Lunch and Learn community, kind of let them know like who you are. Uh, what you've been doing and, you know, why uh, you're doing such an amazing job at what you're doing. Yes, no problem. So I am Marlene Francois Madden. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in New Jersey. I also do speaking engagements in the community, uh, local churches. I've spoken at the Congressional Black Caucus for Women and Girls. I also run workshops for teens. I have a nonprofit organization And I'm also the owner of Hearts Empowerment Counseling Center, which is a therapy practice for women and girls. So um, that's just like a little bit of what I do. I also have a therapist planner, which is a product that I sell for therapists, the first ever planner that has a lot of mental health diagnoses and there also has psychotropic medications. So a lot of things that that social workers and psychologists and mental health 
therapists utilize. So I've incorporated all that into a product for them. Um, so that's a little bit of what I do. Right, ladies and gentlemen, I told you like I, I was not playing. Uh, Marlene is doing like absolutely amazing things. We're gonna we're gonna get into everything. We're gonna get into a nonprofit. We're gonna get into the therapist planner, which my wife is a a loyal and happy customer of. Uh, so again, we'll we'll make sure you know we're gonna deep dive in. And again, if you're not around where you can kind of write some of these things down, remember I will be putting all of her information in the show notes, so you'll be able to get the therapist planner. You'll be able to uh, get in touch with her nonprofit profit organization. If you're in the area, you'll be able to get in touch with her company as well. Like I said, this is a, a person doing absolutely amazing things and we're just excited uh, to have her here uh, to talk about uh, a topic that, again, unless you've you know, been sleeping under a rock, has been kind of hitting you front and center, right? The, the discussion of sexual abuse, sexual assault, and sexual trauma in general. Uh, Mar- Marlene, can you Kind of give us a little intro on, especially in with your uh, expertise and kind of where your focus is at as far as like sexual trauma. Like, how would you, as a therapist, kind of define sexual trauma for uh, the lay person who may not, you know, fully understand like the subtle differences between a lot of the terms that they're starting to hear? Yeah. So you have there's a lot of terms you hear: sexual trauma, you hear sexual abuse, sexual assault. So for me, the way I like to define it: so the sexual trauma. I believe that is what your symptoms that you're experiencing as a result of sexual abuse or assault. So any of that could be related to rape, molestation, um, sexual harassment, anything that that details with anything that involves with not having your consent, um, that can result to sexual trauma. And and I think I think a big thing you talked about, especially the consent aspect of it. Um, I know yeah. being being a male. And, you know, being around, uh, you know, social circles with a lot of males, I think the topic has came up in our, in our groups, like, what is consent? Uh, and it's twofold, right? Again, I like to play devil's advocate, but I, I think a lot of the men um, in, in the circles that I'm with or kind of frequent with or just kind of being around in earshot are like at loss, right? Like for some reason, they don't understand what consent is anymore, right? They say, they'll even yeah. say statements like, what can I do now? Like, can, can you kind mm-hmm. of... Uh, you know, give a, a fresh, you know, a rebreather on what like consent means and, you know, why is it so important to actually have it? Yeah. So for me, consent is you need to hear the person physically, like verbally say yes or no. And if you don't have that clear consent, it makes it, it makes it a blur line. I think if you've built a relationship with someone and you know that person, then it's one thing to understand, you know, clearly you're not going to ask your wife every single night, like, hey, babe, like, yes or no, you know? But and you kind of built that relationship with them. But if you don't really know the person, it is very important to have permission. Um, if you if that person does not give you permission, then you're pretty much trying to to take something from them without having that consent. So it's so important. And I think this is something even um, for young children. As for young children, parents sometimes don't teach kids that they own their body. And for kids to have to understand what consent means. And understand, you know, you own your body. You can tell people no, um, because so often, even me as a Haitian person, um, growing up, you had to when you walk in a room, you have to give everyone a kiss on the cheek. You have to say hi to people. You mm. couldn't just wave. You have to go up to each person. So you, you you normally know, like with little kids, sometimes there are people they don't want to be around. They don't want to say hi. And now you, you've kind of taken that right away from them, and you're telling them you need to say hi to this person. You need to go up to them and give them a kiss on the cheek. 
you know, you, you're being disrespectful by not giving them a kiss on the cheek. And now that child, they no longer feel comfortable saying no. And then you grow to become an adult. Then you don't know if you have that consent to say no. You just feel like, well, you know what? I'm just going to do this because the other person wanted, even though I really don't want to deep down inside. And then you're left with the cognitive distortions and the, the shame and the guilt of the aftermath of what occurred. So, um, so consent is consent is so I feel like it's such a huge thing. It's a matter of like, okay, do I have this person acceptance? Do we, do I have an agreement with them to do this? You know, do I have their approval, whether it's um, through their verbal consent or their their nonverbal um, cues that they're giving off? Because sometimes people's nonverbal cues will tell you if they are if they want to consent with doing something or not. Right. And so often people bypass those things. I'm ask a question, like what, what kind of drew you to the topic and the, like the, the conversation and like the field of sexual trauma and wanting to kind of help, uh, especially women and young women uh, in, in, that, in that circle? Like what kind of drew you uh, to that? Well, so since I was five years old, I told my parents that I was going to be a clinical psychologist. So at a very young age, I knew I was going into this field. But I think part of it also stemmed from the fact that I was a survival of child sexual abuse at a young age. And so, but I didn't disclose it to anyone until I was in college. And so at a young age, I would say my early teen years, I would read Teen Vogue magazine and there were other magazines like Seventeen and they would have these Q&A sections in a magazine where they would post questions to mental health professionals and medical doctors and people would answer the questions. It was like an ask health section. Mm-hmm. So there were always questions related to sexual abuse. So I would always read those questions and read the response that the, the psychologist would reply back or like the medical, medical doctor would re- reply back. And I was like, wow, this is so intriguing. I want to be that person who has a column in a magazine or helping young women to kind of find their healing journey. So I think part of it stems from my own childhood pain. Um, and being able to grow up and fall in love with, with psychology. Cause at a young age, I was really into counseling and therapy. So I just knew that I wanted to do some type of work that related to working with women and young girls that have a background of trauma. Wow. Okay. That's, uh, first of all, you know, thank you for sharing your story uh, because I know a lot of times, you know, that, that comes from, you know, a sense of strength of being able to, experience something, experience something so traumatic yeah. and be able to kind of build uh, on top of it. And then now you're kind of like spreading that seed and helping others uh, who are in positions that you may have been or you or your family or just uh, people that we know uh, kind of growing up. And and I'll, yeah. I'll be honest, uh, just kind of like when I was doing my own little research, like I didn't realize how young you know, sexual mm-hmm. trauma and sexual assault and sexual abuse kind of started. Like, I think now we're seeing, you know, when we see all the stuff that's happening uh, on, on TV and in Hollywood and almost now every industry, which again, isn't surprising if it's happened in Hollywood, it's probably happening right down the road. So we shouldn't be surprised that it happens in all these industries. But I think I was surprised, yeah. you know, and taken back of how early, like it starts. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, could you explain just, just the the mental toll that you know you some especially some of your your clients and your patients experience and they have to go through uh, when they experience it at such an early age, but still have to kind of continue and grow and build and become their own. Yeah, so it really starts at it can start at a very young age um, because you know 
especially for children, they're very vulnerable. You know, they're very vulnerable and you you may trust the person. So about like at least 90% of the time, you know who the abuser is, the, the, the perpetrator. Mm. Most people know who it is. It's either a family, a close friend. It's someone who has direct access to that person because what they do is half the time is they go through like some sort of grooming process. When people think of sexual assault and sexual abuse, they automatically think that it's, um, you know, somebody put a gun to your head like, hey, like this is going to happen right now. But that's not the case in a lot of in a lot of in a, in a lot of um, of the assaults that occur. Um, it sometimes it could be someone who who who's watching that child um, and they're playing games with them and they tell them like you know don't tell anyone and now the child is conflicted you know what do I do so then they don't tell anyone and then this person's like if you say something then you won't have this I won't I will no longer give you these games or give you this and so they're pretty much like rewarding or bribing the child with something. And now that child is conflicted and then it causes, um, it can cause a lot of psychological effects afterwards. And for some people, even some physical conditions. So um, I've even had worked with infants, babies that were like under two that were um, raped, I should say, you know, it sounds really bad to say that. Like it's, it's hard. it's, It's really hard to see a situation like that. Because then you get to think about the effects for that child and, you know, the child having to go into surgery and the impact it does on that child, you know, as they get older, they have to think about, okay, what happened to me? You know, um, so, you know, for every, you just have to treat each each case separately. Um, And even as far as like women who are in college, um, one in five women will be assaulted while they're in college. That's like 20%. And so I think that's why a lot of colleges are also now starting um, having, they have like sexual assault programs in school for college students. So that way they can bring their awareness and make it, you know, create that safe space for, for you to go and approach people about what has happened to you. It's really sad that even you know, it starts as young as an infant mm-hmm. from the, the lack of protection. In, in, your, in your practice, um, you, you see, you see this trauma and you, you see the, the, the mental anguish and like, how do you, as a health professional, like, how does that, like, how are you in And Some and patients that like, will ask me that sometimes yeah. they'll say, well, you know, Dr. Pierre, like, how are you able to, you know, see, you know, from point A to point Z, whether it be good times or it be bad times. And then you're just kind of able to kind of go home and uh, quote unquote clock out mm-hmm. like how how especially as a therapist right and I'm I'm always very intrigued uh with the therapist community because I'll be honest right as a as a health as a physician you know we yeah. may spend 15 20 minutes you know and a lot of times we're kind of shooting the breeze maybe we're more directly asking questions and not really listening to answers um in that mm-hmm. point but when you have the, the field of therapy uh, where you guys are doing a lot more in-depth talking, in-depth discussion, like how do you, how are you able to like then move on or then clock out or then go home uh, without that continually having to drag you on? Lots of self-care. <laughs> so I think, so one of the things early on in my professional career, after I graduated with my undergraduate degree in psychology, I was working for Child Protective Services in the state of Pennsylvania, where I resided at the time. And so the unit that I worked for was an adolescent crisis unit, and it was children and adolescents. I had to be in our home three to four times a week, um, very high crisis cases, sex offenders. We would go to sex offenders facilities, a lot of sexual assault and physical abuse cases. 
And so I remember in those moments when I was working late night and you're getting phone calls about someone running away or someone was just raped or you just went to the house and you couldn't believe it was this person who, who um, assaulted the child. And I remember the burden that I had, I would go home and, you know, you would cry because you're taking, you're, you're pulling kids out of their home to put them in foster care. You're separating families. And I remember the burden that I had. And I was just like, this is not healthy for me because if I continue to, to be this way, um, and I like to call that emotion, compassion fatigue is what I like to call that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's somewhat of a burnout because you care so much and then eventually you burn out. So when you get to that point, you can no longer really serve them effectively. So in that moment, I had to realize I have to have clear boundaries. I need to set self-care for myself and realize once I leave work, I am at home. And it doesn't make me um, less passionate about what I do in any way, because when I know when I go home, I need to have the self-care to kind of rejuvenate myself and refuel myself and have time to do more research so I can learn, okay, what are some new methods that are out there, new interventions that I need to learn? Um, And I think it's really important to have a great support system. Um, I always recommend that therapists go see therapists or have therapists as friends. Oh, yes. um, and I, yeah, and I have a large network of therapist friends and they have been very helpful when I needed that place to vet and just like talk about things. You know, my husband has been very helpful too. So I think it's very important to have a support system that you can go to that will listen because so often I find that, um, when you go to people and talk about things, people are like, oh, me too, I'm going through that too. Then no one's really listening to what you're going through. Mm-hmm. So it's important to have that. I think um, it's important to establish self-care. It's important to establish boundaries because if not, you are, you're going to feel the effects of it. And it's going to be very difficult to really, really engage with your client in therapy and, and offer them the support that they need. And um, some therapists also too, they, there's this thing called counter-transparency where the client is talking about the situation that they're going through. And now it's going, now you're having the trauma, you're having the flashbacks of what you went through relating to what the client is going through. So that's why it's so important for therapists to like have some sort of clinical supervision group or peer support group that they can talk about these things so they can figure out what do I need to do? So I'm in a good space to help this client or else the client's going to, or else when it's like the client is giving you therapy sessions in the room. And and physicians who are listening to the lunch and learn, I want y'all to like really take heed. Um, this is not something again. You see, the therapists are doing it. They understand that if they need self love, they need self care. Uh, they go seek others, and they go seek it. There's not. It's it's no reason to be trying to hold it all in, and you know, deal with the anguish and deal with the stress that you know our field kind of holds on. So I'm I'm, I'm definitely happy that uh, you brought that up because again, I, I have a few physicians who listen to me, so I want to make sure. You know, they're, they're all open ears. Now, Marlene, I, I, was, I, was, I was looking at the bio. And uh, again, one thing yeah. that was very interesting uh, to me uh, was your work with women in Haiti in regards to sex trafficking. Now, yeah. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm a, again, as an attorney, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when I think about sex, sex trafficking, right? Like I, I, I think about is SVU. Like I, I don't really have that great of a grasp on just the topic itself. Um, can, can you mm-hmm. kind of give us a little bit intro on just what the, the, the topic or the field of sex trafficking is, and then kind of, you know, really delve into like, how are, are you doing such amazing work in that field? Oh yeah, Absolutely. So with sex trafficking, it's pretty much, it's an illegal business, but people make it seem like it's not. It's um, 
it's a it's a multi-billion industry that is happening so it's, it's your core yes it's, it's just like how pornography is so you're pretty much like it's pretty much um co- coercion you know recruiting um transportation of a person or a child for the purpose of sex so um so often when people think of, of sex trafficking or even human trafficking um when people think of that topic, they think of, oh, this is happening in other countries. It's not happening here, but it's always happening right in our backyards. And January happens to be Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Um, wow. And what happens, what people don't realize, like, for instance, um, New Jersey. So I reside in New Jersey and I'm near a lot of major highways. For people that um, a lot of the pimps, I should say, the pimps, the Johns, or whatever you want to call them, the people who are running these businesses that are illegal, they um, tend to like to be near major highways. So that way they can transport the, the, the young child, girl, woman, man, they can transport them across state lines. So they don't stay in one place too long. Um, so in New Jersey, we're near like major highways to get to Philadelphia, South Jersey, Atlantic City, um, DC. So we're near a lot of major highways. So it's easy for them to kind of just like be stationed there and then move the girls from one place to the other. And what people don't realize with human trafficking, it starts at the age of 12. The age of entry is 12. They're, the younger they can get, the better um, mm. for them, they feel like. Um, some of them will also brand their girls. They'll put tattoos on the girls. They're, so they'll mark their girls as their property. So that way they can, they cannot leave. When they leave and try to go somewhere else, another pimp will be able to identify that she belongs to so-and-so. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times, um, with these girls, they're, they're vulnerable. So you hear either girls that are being, that are running away, they may come from a home where they're getting abused or neglect, you know, foster home. They come from a home that, you know, you hear things like that. You also hear girls who come from a, 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 a somewhat of a stable household. They may come from a household where, you know, they go to a good school, you know, they have their parents support. They have, you think they have everything that they need because sometimes we tend to stereotype groups and families. And, you know, I think even sometimes even physicians may do it. You have someone who comes into your office and like, oh, okay, she's pretty healthy. Everything's good. And mm-hmm. you find out something else and you're like, oh, okay, now let's discuss that. Wow. So um, people tend to sometimes stereotype like, oh, well, she just don't want to act right. That's why she's in the situation. Not realizing that the, the, the pimps are getting very smart. They're up to date with technology and what's happening out there. So um, they're using social media. A lot of times people think the pimp is like this older man with the gold tooth, with the hat, with the little feather and the, you know, the, the, the pimp out suit, you know, the things that I saw growing up back in the day on TV, right. <laughs> but no, it's, um, it may be the young guy who's 19 years old, very attractive. He's driving a BMW and then this girl's in high school and She's like, oh, he got a car. He can take care of me because that's what they do. They tell them, I will take care of you. I will get you a modeling contract. I will buy you this. I will buy you that. So they go through this whole grooming process. And for some of the girls, they may take months or a few weeks to, to do that grooming process. Then eventually that girl falls in love with him. And then he's like, you know, babe, I don't have money. I need you to do this for me. And then now the girl's like, I don't, not sure what she wants to do. Then she decides to do it. And it's like, you need to bring me back a thousand dollars tonight or I'm going to kill you. I'm going to go back and kill your little sister at home. I know where your family lives because they built that relationship with them. So they know so much about that girl and her family that they now are coerced into this. And when they are picked up by the police, 
which is a sad part, is that they they end up in a juvenile detention center, or if they're over 18, they may end up incarcerated for prostitution. So I know some states um, have made the changes with, you know, labeling it as child sexual child sex, sexual exploitation. And then other states are still working on changing the terminology when it comes to sex trafficking and the labels that they put on these girls. But um, they're not getting treated with, with trauma-informed um, therapy, and that's what they need. So now I got to ask, like, what made, wow, what, what made you, what, what drew you to that? Was, was there, um, was there a certain client and then you just kind of went in that direction, especially of course, you know, being the Haitian descent and, you know, uh, yeah. I, I saw that. I said, oh, okay. I gotta, I gotta ask about this because again, I think you, you hit it right on the money. When I, when I think about sexual trafficking, human trafficking, and I always think it's like out the country. Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's, you know, in Florida or in New Jersey or in New York or in California. Like, I think that concept, uh, you know, is it, kind of lost on the fact that it happens right in our backyard, right under our nose. And we're not even sure. Maybe we see, again, especially I'm on social media a lot. So I, I'm always seeing almost, I feel like it's almost every one to two weeks now, uh, so-and-so is missing. And, and mm-hmm. I always wonder, like, that's that's. Unfortunately, my first question is like, all right, did they get kidnapped? But second round, is 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 that is did that happen? Did they go in that direction? And that's why we can't find them anymore. So the reason I went into this, um, I used to work for I used to work for a residential a ther- therapeutic foster care program. So pretty much these were kids that were in a foster home, a foster home, but they were like in a they were foster homes, but then there's something a step higher than that, which was a therapeutic foster home, where the kids were required to see a psychiatrist once a month and they were required to go to therapy sessions weekly. So working in that environment and working with teenagers, a lot of them were running away. Some of them had boyfriends that were older than them. Um, and then we used to run, I did some trainings as far as on running groups on related to human trafficking for, for teens. And I think running the group is when I, watching the videos about it and then learning so much from the girls about how they had friends in high school who were getting all this money and had this older boyfriend or, you know, trying to coerce them into getting into the same route and saying, hey, girl, do you want to come to me with this party? You can make some money tonight just by doing this. It's only this one time. So they found so then they were just going after these other girls, too, that I worked with. So I think that's what made me really dive into it, because I really thought it was like, OK, this is just an international issue. It doesn't really happen in New Jersey. But then I realized it was happening and then I was seeing more stories and articles being pulled up about it and, you know, having other friends who were also passionate about it and doing the work. I recognized, okay, this is, this is a global issue. It's happening everywhere and it just needs, it's not being talked about enough Hmm. in the U.S. So um, that's how I got involved in it. And then eventually it kind of led me to Haiti um, via interaction on social media with another person who was, a, I believe, an occupational therapist in Haiti at the time, working at an orphanage. And she connected me with someone else who was living in Haiti, who was opening up their own transitional housing program for, for girls that were um, involved in human trafficking and DR in Haiti. And it was called the Jasper House, and it was located in Jacmel. So I got involved with them and went out to Haiti and got to work closely with some of the girls that were you know, in this program. And so they provided safe housing for them, education, food. They had so many different programs they had with the girls, you know, having health educators there, having dance, Zumba, um, going to church every week. So the girls really got to like just reclaim who they were as a woman and just like learning how to get their 
learning how to heal and right. just like realize like, okay, I can own my body back despite what happened. And hearing a lot of their stories really traumatic, like, um, because you're dealing with something very different in Haiti. You're dealing with, there's an economic crisis in Haiti. We know that. We know how in Haiti, it's, it's really hard for so many people to survive. And it's just like a lot of these women felt like they had no choice. It was like, my kids need to eat. They need to go to school. I needed, I needed this money. So this is all I can do in the moment. I didn't want to, but I had to do it. Or hearing how, you know, them be, being, you know, beaten and raped by different men and um, and just that stigma with knowing what to call that and not being able to label it as rape. Like they, they didn't know how to label it as rape or sexual abuse or saying like, okay, I was abused by this man. It was just like, oh, I had this friend and he would give me money and, you know, we would do things. Mm. And it was like, well, did you want to do those things? No, not really, but I had to. And then the more and more I talked about it, the more and more the tears would come down their face and like, the 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 embarrassment the shame and it was like this is not your fault you know i don't want you to put the blame on yourself like you were forced into this um someone tried to take advantage of you so i think a lot of times they didn't know like i think you know there's still that stigma i think even like in our in the african-american and, and caribbean cultures when it comes to like sexual assault and trauma and things of that sort so for these girls where they feel like, okay, well, I, I, my family needs to survive and I need to do this so I can have $25 to put my kids in school yep. for the entire month. Where here, you know, public school, you have public school, you can go to school for free just to buy kids some clothes. But over there, it's like you have to pay for education. Right. If you don't pay for education, what's going to happen with your kids? And, you know, trying to have money for food, just the bare minimum they needed. And it was, it, it felt like they had no other option. So, so a lot of it seems, especially it, it seems to come from uh, a sense of an origin of survival. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. and again, obviously we don't want to, you know, belittle anyone who may be, you know, obviously going through the same things here. Uh, but it, it seems like almost a, a, a level of connectedness. Like there's a lack of connection one way or the other. And that's how they get connected to said pimp. And that's how they get connected uh, yeah. to said home and away from home in a way, because there's that lack of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's no safety. You know, there's no safety. Your, your basic needs are being met. So now you're looking for another option. How has all, especially all this stuff that's kind of been stemming from, you know, it, the fact that now and I, now it's popular, right? Now it's popular to have this discussion on sexual assault and sexual abuse and sexual trauma and hopefully soon sexual trafficking. Um, how how has that kind of helped? Uh, I, I guess help spur uh, your field and you know the clients that you may see now on versus maybe a few years ago. I think now, like, because you have the whole Me Too campaign happening, um, you're seeing a lot more dialogue and discussion when it relates to, to women just advocating for each other and stepping up and, you know, fighting for their rights. So you're seeing a lot more of that discussion happening. So I think that women are, you know, not just women and men too, people are becoming a little bit more comfortable with sharing and disclosing their own trauma and things that has happened to them. And people are becoming more willing to go and seek help and, and see a mental health therapist. And I also think also too, therapists, as therapists, we're putting ourselves out there a little bit more. We're speaking up more about what does it look like? What is your first appointment seeing a therapist look like? What is anxiety? What is depression? How do I know if I'm sad? What is mental health versus mental illness? So we're having those discussions. And I think it's becoming a little bit more 
more accepting and go see someone, you know, look at Jay-Z. He's out there talking about therapy, you know, <laughs> he put on his album, he had on his album. And, and so I think when people are seeing celebrities talking about therapy and having the Me Too hashtag and campaign happening and seeing people all across Facebook talking about it, people are like, wow, you too. And so I think that's what people need when they can see that, okay, I, I am going through something that you also went through or we, we, we share the same pain. It makes it easier for people to feel comfortable to share what they're going through and be more vulnerable. Now, at, at the level, especially from, from being open, do you, because I know obviously you work with, you know, you know primarily women and young girls. Do, do you find a bar much higher uh, for men to want to come out and who may have experienced sexual trauma, sexual abuse growing up uh, to even admit it, like even to say me too, like do, do you find that uh, to be a very stark difference of, especially with the movement that we have now that I don't want to say primarily seems to be women centered, but uh, of course I think, uh, and again, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think a lot more women mm-hmm. suffer from sexual assault and sexual trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Women definitely, women definitely suffer more from it. Um, I think, I think when it comes to men, there's still this stigma, like that didn't happen or people laugh at them. Like there's still like this laughing concept, like, Oh, you know, a man can't get raped and hmm. people don't understand that. Or like men also to themselves, if they're put in that position, they don't want to speak out about it because it has, that dialogue is not happening so frequently as far as what does, what does it look like for a man who does not consent to this? Um, and it also for the statistics, only one in nine girls will experience sexual abuse before they're 18 compared to one in 53 boys under the age of 18. Wow. So the rate is higher. The rate is higher for women to experience sexual um, assault and abuse. For men, maybe, I think there's also maybe two, like one um, lack is underreported. Um, I think there's, it's underreported, not just for men, but I also think that in the African-American community, it's underreported as far as sexual assault when it comes to the data. Um, and so for men, it's like, if it happens, who do they go to? Because then it's like, what do I say? Or who, I think the impact also too, if they were, if they were sexually abused by a male or a female, there's a different impact Mm -hmm. because you, I know recently there was a story of a, of a teacher who got pregnant by one of her students and the family were excited. The family of the young boy was excited about this, that. Our son is having a baby with this. Talk talk about it. Yeah. Talk about it. And then I'm like, I watched it. I had to shut it off. I'm like, I can't do this. I cannot do this right now. And then, but you always hear that dialogue. I remember growing up, always hearing that dialogue when I was in high school. The boy's like, oh yeah, I can just bang that teacher. Mm -hmm. It was like something you want to do. I remember growing up watching Dawson's Creek on TV. And then the the boy, he he was in high school, forgot his name. He was sleeping with his, his teacher. And it was it was an okay thing for them. It was like the thing that people, they wanted to do. Yep. So it's like still that thing where like, if that was, if a situation like that did occur, you can just only imagine for the other, you know, if he's telling his guy friends in the locker room, like, yeah, you know, me and so-and-so, it would be like me and so-and-so had sex. It wouldn't even be like me, you know, so-and-so came at me and she raped me. Right. Because if he says that, the other guy's like, what? Like, I wish she would rape me. Like you exactly, would hear. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then it's, it's like, stigma. at that point, it's like, is, yeah. This, it's, it's so yeah. It's so slanted for men to, 
want and accept something that's clearly sexual assault, that's clearly rape, that's clearly sexual trauma, but mentally uh, they were like, oh, no, no, that I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how can, especially, especially as, as a physician, and, and, and of course, I always feel that, you know, our therapists are really the front line when it comes to mental health and, you know, getting our act together, you know, as a, you know, as a community, as a country um, together. Uh, but I think the numbers, the numbers, you know, don't, don't lie, right? A, a lot of your mm-hmm. patients, right, will come see the primary care first, right? And not necessarily for mental health issues, but for, yeah. you know, their blood pressure, for their cholesterol, for some ran, but mm-hmm. they still have that same, you know, those same characteristics, right? What are some things that, especially as me as a physician, should be really looking out for and really keying in on uh, when we when we're when we're thinking about a, a history of sexual trauma or the effects of sexual assault when they were young, that that I should even like incorporate tomorrow uh, in, in my practice and in my my history taking. I think it's important to uh, so some warning signs I would say look out. So with with the medical profession, I would say asking them questions as far as like with depression. I know there are um, I think it's called a PQI or PHI scale. There's a questionnaire where you can ask them where it can kind of assess for depression or suicidal thoughts. So looking out for some of those normal things, like how's your energy level, your appetite, any sleeping pattern changes, you know, ask them questions about if they had nightmares or any flashbacks, because nightmares and flashbacks are associated to PTSD and trauma. Um, If you're checking, if you're scoping out their body, like, you know, checking their heart rate and with, you know, their arm to get their vitals, things like that. Seeing if you see any um, any unusual cuts or bruises on their body to see like, okay, is this person being abused or some sort of domestic dispute happening or are they engaging in self-harm behavior? Um, STDs is another big one. If they have had a history of any STIs or STDs, asking them if they remember how they contracted it um, as far as like their sex life, asking questions about that to see what's going on with that because sometimes you may have people where they will tell you that they, you know, their sex life is no longer the same because of some experience that they had that they weren't comfortable with, you know, maybe even, you know, assessing for drug and alcohol behaviors, um, asking them who they reside with, who do they live with, you know, do they feel safe? You know, so you always want to assess, assess for safety. I think safety is one of the biggest things and making sure that they feel safe where they reside at, that they're where they're, where they work at, where they live, go to school? Do you feel safe here? Are they in an abusive relationship or not? So look out for those things. If you're working with a adolescent or a child, you know, how are your grades in school? You know, how are, you know, how are things going? You know, looking for unusual behaviors and asking the parents too, have you seen any difference, any significant changes lately in your child? Are they, are they spaced out all day? Do you have a child who is, you know, in school now and now they're dealing with enuresis? So they're bedwetting all day. Or they, they're they reverting back to that behavior. So if that's happening too, that's another sign of, of some sort of sexual abuse. So asking about that, you know, assessing those things as much as possible when you have that child or adult that's in your practice and figuring out, okay, what is unusual that's happening? Do you feel safe? And just seeing how they engage with you in that moment. I think that's important because I used to again I would have I would have patients come in for very vague complaints and 
you know, as a physician, especially if you're if you're not thinking in that mental health, you know, aspect first and asking like more in-depth serious questions, you know, you're you're, you're running tests, you're ordering, you're sending them to different specialists. And mm-hmm. I, I remember specifically, I had a patient, she came in, it was probably she three times in one month, three, which is totally unusual. Three times in one yeah. month came and it was always for something vague. And it was always for something that, you know, that it just didn't make sense when she, when she told the story. And, and I remember just asking, you know, one day I said, I said, is everything okay at home? Like that was all I said, is everything okay mm-hmm. at home? And she began bawling tears. And she began yeah. bawling tears because clearly she, she was coming because she wanted to say something, but she didn't know how to say it. Mm-hmm. And, and all it took was me for to ask that one question, and it, it was almost like the floodgates. And she was able to open up and, and talk about some of the issues that she was facing at home. Uh, in particular, this particular case was domestic violence, and uh, get yeah. to the point where you know she she was able to open up because she couldn't do it at home, right? And uh, her yeah. way to get out the house was to have a doctor's appointment and to be quote unquote mm-hmm. sick. So, yeah, so I, yeah, because, I, I definitely agree yeah. with, you know, just, just, and, and it, it always sounds bad, but I think some of our doctors, we're just not asking questions. Like we're just not, we're, we're just not doing enough of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think also too, um, I know there was a doctor, uh, I think her name is Dr. Burke. She's a pediatrician out in California. She did a TEDx talk on the effects of child adverse, um, of like child abuse. And she talked about how when she was um, in her um, training and residency, um, working in the ER, and children were coming in with like various complaints, but no one was really asking the right questions. And she realized a lot of these, a lot of what they're going through are because of their trauma and not the sexual trauma, but other forms of trauma that, that kids may experience. So if you witness your parents with in, with in a domestic dispute, if you've seen someone get shot, um, so a lot of the other trauma that occurs and how that affects the child. So she started doing a lot of research and study around that and just being able to ask questions related to, related to that. So that way she can better, better provide service and recommendations and care for the patients that were coming and coming in to see her. So, you know, obviously I, I want to, you know, because obviously this is such a powerful episode, such a powerful topic, but I do want to end on a more lighter note. And, and I, I want to kind of segue and kind of talk about your nonprofit, right? And, I, and I'll say this, and I'm honest, uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm definitely, I'm a little biased, right? Uh, as as mm-hmm. a, I guess, a founder of a nonprofit organization, um, I love when I see other young professionals, right, um, be able to say, you know what? Yes, I'm doing okay. Yes, I'm doing great in my field, but I want to do more. I want, I want to do more for uh, those in need. So can you mm-hmm. can we talk just a little bit about uh, far more precious your organization, your nonprofit work, 501c3 nonprofit organization. And for those who listen, that means you can donate money and be a tax writer. Yeah. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> can we talk a little bit more about that? Because again, I'm I'm excited. I, I absolutely love program. I love the theme of it. And I, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm always get inspired when I see you know someone you know who's like okay oh they got nonprofit too okay I like it. Yeah. Yes. So a lot of it is then from when I was in graduate school, I knew I wanted to give back to girls, you know, underserved communities. And for me, a lot of it had to do with um, in my profession and internship experiences, working with teenagers and realizing that 
they they were limited on resources when it came to like academic growth and professional development and not knowing what opportunities are out there for them. So this was a way to kind of give back to the community by providing those resources for young girls that were in high school, um, being able to provide some academic scholarships. So um, it was a way to kind of get into the schools and kind of do a lot of talks about self-esteem and, you know, social media etiquette and, you know, goal setting workshops. So that was my way of kind of just like doing that for girls. Um, And then also this year, what we're doing is that we're doing a five city tour and New Jersey, Brooklyn, New York, um, Baltimore, Maryland, DC, and Philly, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're doing a five city tour where we're going to target 40 girls per city and we're doing a brunch experience for the girls. So millennials love to brunch. I love to brunch. I'm obsessed with brunch. But then it seems like for young girls, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of events. You know, women are doing a lot of women empowerment events. There are conferences. There's a lot that's happening for young professionals. But for a a lot of these young girls, they have conferences and workshops that happen with their school or you go to this workshop and it's like, okay, this is good. I sit here and listen to you talk all day. This is great. But being able to have something where they have brunch and you can sit there and chop it up with some girls you don't know, just to be like, sis, I got you. Just to have that engagement and just to be vulnerable, just have that safe space so we can talk about various things that are happening. So we can talk about the cyberbullying that's happening in their community. We can talk about the young girls that have been dying from suicide. Um, we can talk about the young girl who um, some young boys thought that she had their marijuana, so they had her stripped on Facebook Live stripped her completely, took her wig off and called her all types of degrading names only to find out that she didn't have the marijuana on her and for her to leave there embarrassed. And so you just can imagine a public humiliation that goes with that. So a lot of these girls are dealing with issues that is not being addressed in their school. And some of them don't have the opportunity to leave and go to some sort of um, like have some sort of community agency that they can go to or have some after school enrichment program. They may not have access to a therapist or maybe they don't know how to go, how to seek help. And um, so then being able to provide a safe space for young girls to like come out and eat food because they love to eat and then they can take selfies, but then they can learn something. So it's me along with another therapist who's located in Philadelphia. We're teaming up together because we love working with teens and we're just going to talk about these issues. So whether it's self-harm, suicide, depression, um, you know, your self-esteem and trying to figure out what do I want to do with my life? So um, that's pretty much what we're doing this year with Fire Precious. It's having this um, team tour. Yeah. And lunch learning community, I see how she kind of humble bragging like, oh, that's all we're doing this year. Just a five city tour, you know, coming come near you. Oh. <laughs> you know, I, I love it. And it's, again, especially because I'm, I'm around, again, a lot of millennials, I'm around a lot of entrepreneurs, I'm around a lot of, you know, minority folks really doing big things. So I'm, I, my interests are always peaked uh, when, you know, things like that are happening. So please, uh, you know, definitely Marlene, reach out to me uh, when, whenever it comes time, yeah. donation time. So I can, you know, definitely, I would love to, you know, you know, put my hat in and sponsor or do something to kind of help those girls out because uh, I, I think it, it definitely starts young. Um, it it yeah. definitely starts where, uh, you know, where we need the most help. Like I said, not to say that our, our older folks don't need help. Right. And again, I, I love the fact mm-hmm. that I can call myself older now. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm at the age now where I can say back in my day 
and say it with mm-hmm. confidence. Like you dropped you dropped the Dawson's Creek reference, and I'm pretty sure we're gonna have some people who be like Dawson's Creek, like what is Dawson's Creek? I know that's what I said too. I was like, oh my gosh, they probably know what I'm talking about, Dawson Creek. <laughs> so so I absolutely love it, and uh, I again please definitely reach out again. Of course, I will definitely be putting uh, her information in the show notes for her nonprofit organization member of 501c3. That means you could donate that money and it'd be a tax write-off uh-huh. so you don't lose uh, Lunch and Learn community. Like definitely uh, please, uh, you know, reach out, especially if you're in that, that Northeast area and you can help out in any which way with either financial support, body support, or, you know, location, whatever you can do, uh, please reach out to her and, uh, you know, try to make the thing happen uh, for, for the 40 girls uh, in, in each of those cities. And hopefully next year she can make it 60 girls and 80 girls because uh, that's, that's, uh-huh. Uh, that's the direction and trajectory should go. Now I would be, yeah, absolutely. Remiss, I would be remiss, right, if I didn't, you know, have a discussion, right? Especially when we talk about mental health. Someone would not like me if they say, "How did you have uh, a, a therapist of Haitian descent on your show, and you did not talk about as Haitians when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, the the mental health aspect of it, right?" Let me, let me, yeah. first of all, I'll, I'll preference it what I face just in the medical aspect of it. In the medical field, in my Haitian community, I, you know I love y'all, but I, I face a lot of having to combat a lot of stereotypes, uh, having to combat a lot of juices and teas and different mm-hmm. remedies that may have worked or not worked growing up. Um, in place of kind of modern medicine, right? Uh, so I know if I'm facing that in the medical realm, right, in, in my community, right? Like how, how especially, you know, you, you're working with the, uh, the young women uh, in Haiti. Like how, how, is, how has that been accepted as far as mental health in general, would you say? Oh, it's, um, it's a trying, still learning. <laughs> because uh, So I've spent seven years working in a psychiatric hospital. Um, and I've worked in two separate psychiatric hospitals in New Jersey. And in both of the areas, we have a large Haitian community. So we've had Haitians come into the hospital. And um, some of them were some of them were accepting of their diagnosis and understanding that they have schizophrenia, you know, major depressive disorder. But then there were others who were like, no, I don't have that. I just need to go to church. But I think it's, it's such a tough, um, it's so hard. It's really hard. It's a matter of just like really engaging the community because as a Haitian community, we always go to the church first. The church is like usually our stopping ground for a lot of our issues. So you have a child who's having some, you, you having some issues with your kids, you, talk, you call the church you call, you tell, you call them to do a prayer at your house. I remember when I was little, I was sick one day. I, I decided to run around in circles or something and I was busy and I was busy for two days. And then how about my dad decided to bring the preachers to the mm. house to pray mm. for me? Pray. <laughs> instead of taking, <laughs> instead of taking me, instead of taking, mind you, mind you, we've always had health insurance, always had really great health insurance from his job. He was like, oh no, we're going to have the leaders come over and pray for her. She'll be fine. And I was good the next day. I probably needed to rest. Who knows? I was playing around too much, but mm-hmm. it was like, it's those things. It's like, oh, you know, let's just pray for you. Or we have this remedy. You know, every grandmother, every Haitian grandma has some sort of special remedy, some ginger, some sliced mm-hmm. up orange zest leaves hanging in their house, some fey. I don't drink of tea. Uh, I don't yes. drink plenty of tea. I don't. I don't had to bathe in plenty of tea growing up. So I like. Right? 
<laughs> yeah. So, and, and the funny thing is that I have started to incorporate some of those in my lifestyle, like meringue, leaves. But uh, it's, <laughs> it's just like how we, we, we tend to go after um, more holistic approaches um, with, with the teas and the herbs or going to the, to the preacher uh, when it comes to something that's happening. And also to the Haitian community, people sometimes think maybe this is voodoo that's happening. So then people are going to a voodoo priest. Um, so it's things like that that are happening. So I think a lot of the dialogue when it comes to mental health is bringing it to the churches. So bringing it to the churches and just talking about like, okay, what does depression look like? What does anxiety look like? What does ADHD look like? Maybe your child needs to get tested. How does that testing process work and evaluation when it comes to the school? Who can advocate on your behalf? You know, do you need to go to a hospital and get assessed by a psychiatrist? Do you need to get screened and evaluated? And what would that look like for you? And, you know, what does it look like to be put on medication? Um, so being able to just have that dialogue with them to let them know what it entails and how, okay, if you have a mother who's grieving the loss of her child or someone who just gave birth and dealing with postpartum depression, what can we do to support her in that moment? So I think sometimes in our in the Caribbean culture, we have this hush-hush mentality. What happens in my home stays in my home. No one needs to know what happened. And that's really not as effective when you need help because then you're suffering in silence. So I think there needs to be more vulnerability. Um, and then them being able to know the resources that are out there um, in New Jersey. We have a lot of support services, but it's a matter of getting more. We need more Haitian therapists who speak Creole that are private practice. I think we can get more of them to go into private practice that will help to change the game a whole lot. Um, Especially when I'm getting phone calls from people who are like, you know, I prefer to see someone who's patient because I'm more Mm -hmm. comfortable. You understand the culture. So being able to have more people for as a referral source and because everyone has their specialty. So um, I think the more and more we have those dialogues and just offering just, just basic education and training. I think it starts there. Having that, and them knowing where they can go for resources, that's going to really help them realize like, okay, well, you know what? It's okay if I go get help. It's okay. And having the pastors support that. And, and I think also having churches have some sort of um, counseling support services. I know the church that I attend, we have a list of directory of Christian therapists or, you know, group, we have a grief share for people that are um, dealing with someone in their family that has cancer. There's groups of people that are recovering from substance use. We have groups for women survivors of sexual abuse. So having those things within the church too also helps because then people are more comfortable. They trust, you know, the Haitian community seems like they trust the church. So having that in the church may be helpful too. Oh, yes. Tell it, tell it. And, and that's so true because I, I used to have a lot of patients who would come to see me just for the simple fact that I spoke Korea. And, you know, yeah. and they would leave their doctor for years, but they're like, nope, you, you speak Creole, so I'm, I'm going to come to you because uh, it does mm-hmm. it does make them much more comfortable. And I can only imagine it's like pulling teeth for me to get them to talk about their blood pressure and their weight and their diabetes. So I can only imagine and I, I definitely do not envy your position having to get to talk, having someone to talk to get someone to open up about uh, depression, get someone to open up about uh, bipolar mm-hmm. disorder, get someone to open up about being anxious. Uh, like I can, yeah. I just, again, I tip my hat because I already know, I already know the battles you're having to face probably trying to do just that. How can, you know, obviously if they're in the Northeast area, maybe you do virtual, but like how can someone uh, reach out uh, and, and get in contact with you and, 
uh, get in contact with your organization or get uh, your your amazing planner. Like I said, uh, you know, uh, shameless plug. My wife is a customer of the, the there, yeah. so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, definitely can attest uh, to the fact that if you're a therapist and you know what, you're not as organized as you want to be, not to say that you ain't organized, but you're not as organized mm-hmm. as you want to be. This is definitely uh, something you need to get into. Yes. Yes. So the way they can connect with me is my website. My website is MarleneFrancois.com. Um, I have like several sites. Um, Farmer Precious website is FarmerPrecious.org. If you'd like to get plugged in with Bars with the Girls brunch that we're doing, we are looking for sponsors and volunteers. That website is brunchandbond.com. And I also have a therapy practice located in Montclair, New Jersey. And the website for that is heartsempowerment.com. Lunch and Learning Community, I told you, I told you, I had an amazing guest here doing absolutely big things, and you, you, you listen to the list of things that she's she's running off. Like again, these are uh, amazing people uh, doing some great things in our community, and and I'm just uh, thankful uh, that we were able to kind of get her on and uh, share her story, and also educate us on you know what it really means. Like I said, we got a lot of learning to do as a uh, a health professional, as a physician. Um, I, I, I take an onus and trying to make sure I empower myself so I can kind of help empower you guys as well. So next week, uh, you know, stay tuned for another amazing episode. And Marlene, thank you for, uh, thank you again. Like I said, I can't, I can't say it enough uh, for uh, coming on to the show and uh, really um, helping to empower and educate us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Lunch Learn with Dr. Barry. Please head over to lunchlearnpod.com where you'll get the most recent episodes as well as today's show notes for your listening and viewing pleasure. And like always, depending on where you're listening this to, please subscribe to the podcast so you can get all the latest episodes sent directly to you. And we are at all of your favorite podcast listening stations including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher Radio. Again, thank you for taking the time to listen and empower yourself to take control of your health, and we'll see you next week.